The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. Strength is something we talk about a lot when it comes to our lives, right? Strength, we want to be strong. We want to appear strong. And we say it a lot, you know, we want to be strong in the Lord. Philippians 4.13 is a lot of people's favorite verse. Thanks, you know, Tim Tebow. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Or when I am weak, then I am strong. We got these pithy statements about strength that we say a lot. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it's really difficult for me to understand What does that really mean? Because first of all, our culture is all about being strong, right? We, our culture is survival of the fittest. And whether or not you subscribe to that evolutionary process, our culture says only the strong survive. That's a reality. You don't show weaknesses, you show strength. And not only is that something that we think about physically, about not showing weaknesses, but it's also something we think about like emotionally and um, mentally and even in our faith journey, right? We don't want to show our weaknesses. If we start to see a weakness creep in, immediately we're like, okay, what can I do to fix it? Who who should I talk to? What can I do to get rid of this weakness? Put it behind me. Get back on the track towards strength. We don't want weaknesses to enter in. Now, the second thing that I think makes this idea of um, when I'm weak, when then I'm strong, it makes it difficult to understand is it's kind of a paradox, right? Um, it's an antonym. So not the word in second grade, and you're like, there's antonyms and homonyms and palindromes. So they're opposites. Strength, strong and weak are opposites. So when I first hear it, I'm like, yeah, that is awesome. When I am weak, then I am strong. That is just so inspiring. And then I stop and think about it, and I'm like, wait, what? What does that even mean? That doesn't even make sense to say, when I am weak, then I am strong. So for a few weeks this quarter, we're going to look at this. What does strength and weakness look like? And tonight, we're going to start by looking at the kind of the archetype of this weak slash strong thing, and that's the Apostle Paul. Um, And we talked about Paul a lot last quarter. We looked at the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. So a lot of you might be feeling a little bit Pauled out at this point, which I understand. But here's the great thing about Paul's letters. He wrote a bunch of letters at the end of the New Testament, and he wrote to a bunch of different people and places. And in every single letter, he was able to communicate the gospel in such a way that people would really understand it in their circumstances what they were going through, what they were experiencing. And so reading Paul, I think for us, and how do we live out our faith, 2,000 years later, a lot of what Paul says really applies to us. So we're going to take a look at that. What does it mean to say, when I am weak, then I am strong? But before we do that, let's stop a minute and pray about my weaknesses tonight. Gracious God, we are so grateful that you are our strength. We're so grateful that you are with us in this place, and I pray that tonight and here now that we would know that and be assured of it. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. In your holy name, amen. All right, so the book that we're going to look at tonight is 2 Corinthians, and it has a lot to say about weakness, and Paul's weaknesses in particular. 
Now, I'm going to give you some historical context. That's kind of my thing. I'm sorry if you think it's kind of boring, but I think historical context is great, really valuable. I really like it, so deal, okay? History, ready, go. So Paul was really instrumental in starting a church in the city of Corinth. He helped the church get started, and he wrote letter. He wrote a letter to them. First Corinthians was the first letter he wrote, not just a clever name. Um, he wrote to this church in Corinth. And then he writes 2 Corinthians a few years later. And in those years, kind of some trubs have risen to the surface in the relationship between Paul and the church in Corinth, right? They have some issues. There's some stress in their relationship. Um, so they're experiencing a little bit of difficulty. And what Paul is doing in the in this second letter to the Corinthians is actually, in a way, he's kind of defending himself to the Corinthians. Because... There have been some other apostles, some people, some new teachers, some preachers that are bringing in some some new ideas um, that are helping, causing people in the Corinthian, Corinthian church to say, you know what, I'm kind of done with Paul. I'm kind of over him. I think I want to move on over here to this guy over here. I'm going to listen to this guy now. So Paul writes this letter because he wants to communicate to them what it looks like to be a church, first and foremost. If you want to know what it is to be a community, read 2 Corinthians. But also he's defending himself against these other apostles that have kind of sprouted up. So that's the context of what we're looking at here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, um, starting at verse 1. Um, I must go on boasting. I is Paul. I refers to Paul. I is Paul. That sounds great. Um, I refers to Paul. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So I want to stop for a minute just because, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so Paul is saying, here's a situation of what's going on in Corinth. A lot of what's happening is these new apostles, these new teachers are coming in and claiming to have visions and revelation and revelations and spiritual experiences that no one has ever had before. And they're saying, if you want to hear about what's really going on in the kingdom of God, come and listen to me. Because I was taken up into the third heaven in this crazy experience. And so Paul knows this is going on, and he says in, in verse 2, he says, or verse 1, visions and revelations. That was actually probably a catchphrase that people would use in order to get the Corinthians' attention. They would say, I have had visions and revelations. Come and listen to what I have seen, what I have heard. And um, people were enticed by that. They wanted to be moved emotionally. They wanted the latest and the greatest. Does that sound familiar at all? Kind of in the Christian culture that we have here. So they decided, many of the Corinthians were like, I don't want to listen to Paul anymore because these guys, they're more exciting. I like what they've got going on. They're talking about, I don't know, unicorns and rainbows, whatever. Whatever it is that they're communicating that sounds really exciting, that they feel like, you know what, Paul, we're, we're kind of moving on from you. We want to listen to this guy. So Paul continues in verse 3, and that's kind of the context of of what he's referring to. Starting in verse 3. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows. This man was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about someone like that, 
but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. So Paul has experienced visions and revelations, but he's saying the complete opposite of everyone else. He isn't going to boast about the fact that he's had these amazing visions. He's been taken up to the third heaven. He's experienced things that he couldn't even describe to other people. But instead, he's going to boast in his weaknesses. Now, I imagine the reactions to this letter by the Corinthians would be like, wait, what? You're going to brag about being weak and pathetic? Yeah, I think I'm still going to go with this guy, right? Who's going to want to follow Paul when he's bragging about his weaknesses? He goes on to say his weaknesses are worth boasting about and they're not going to go away. Let's continue on in verse 6. Backing up to verse 5 again, he says, But I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There it is in black and white. Now, it helps to know the context within which Paul was saying these words, what was going on in the church in Corinth, because it helps to know Paul is taking an approach that is completely countercultural. This is the total opposite of even what was going on in the church, let alone what was going on in the world. Instead of showing his upper hand of strength of like, I have had visions, I've had revelations, everybody should follow me. He's telling them how excited and thrilled he is about this thorn in his flesh. Paul's telling the Corinthians what's important is not these transcendent moments when we're spiritually airborne. What's important is that he gets up every day in obedience, in the daily chore of preaching and teaching, despite this thorn in his flesh that he experiences every moment of his life. Now, what exactly the thorn is that Paul was experiencing has been debated for centuries. Nobody really knows. The Greek word that's used here is the word skolops, which is actually um, translated stake, is another way to translate it. And it only appears here in the New Testament. And stake is something that's used, obviously, for impaling. We all know what a stake is because vampires are kind of popular right now. But basically, it lets us know it's an annoyance that Paul couldn't get rid of, that he was stuck with. It could have been a physical ailment. It probably was the way he talks about a thorn in his flesh, but it also could have been mental. It could have been emotional. Whatever it was for Paul, 
this thorn was pretty substantial and something that he faced every day. What matters is not what it was that Paul was afflicted with. What matters is how it affected him. And he clearly states he rejoiced because of this thorn, because it made him weak, even though he begged for God to take it away. And God gave him an answer. God didn't say nothing. God gave him an answer and said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul's come to this amazing place of contentment about weakness. And for us, that's difficult to understand. He even says, you know what, bring it on. Include hardships, include persecution, insults. All of those things will remind me that when I am weak, then I am strong. I know you guys think that really appreciate the mathematical prowess I have, the graphs that I've demonstrated sometimes before to show biblical um, truths. And so I came up with one for this, um, and it basically is strength and weakness mathematical formula. First part, Paul's weakness, which is the negative, that's a mathematical term, the negative, um, plus the pow- Christ's power, that's the positive, equals perfect power, perfection, right? A negative plus a positive equals perfection. <laughs> Does that not work out mathematically? All right, well. It does in my world. What Paul is saying, what Paul is saying to the, to the Corinthians is that it's not enchanting visions, heavenly experiences, being emotionally moved. It's not the latest and greatest Christian thing that is going to allow you to see Christ. But it's actually in weaknesses, the power of Christ is truly revealed in through you, in and through you, because Christ's strength is what other people can see. I bet any of you who went on the mission trips last week, um, different places, when you started to feel really connected, when you started to feel community with the people on your trip, it was when you started to take down the masks and talk about things you struggle with and shared your weaknesses with them. And that is the complete opposite of what the world tells us to do. It tells us to run as far away from weaknesses as we can. When I was in high school, I, um, my dad bought me a car to drive. And I have an older brother and sister. And when they were in the house, they, weren't a, they didn't get a car unless they bought it themselves. So when they found out that my parents had bought me a car, they were like, what? That's ridiculous. I can't believe you bought Janie a car to drive. Just, she's so spoiled because she's the baby. And then they heard that it cost $250, first of all. And secondly, they saw the car, and they were like, oh, never mind. <laughs> we would have never driven that. Because it was a 1981 two-tone brown Ford Escort. I have a picture of it. There it is. <laughs> yeah. The best part of this is my dad took a picture of it and put it in the photo album. Uh, the car that I drove, just the car, nobody with the car or anything exciting happening in front of the car, just the car that's in the photo album. Anyway, I called it the Triple T, two-tone turd, and it actually, it had a third color because the hood was oxidized and so it was really white, so all the paint had chipped off, and the inside was this really nice mustard yellow vinyl interior and carpet. It is, it was so choice. I highly recommend picking one up. If you have the means. Anyway, so this is a car that I had. Um, and one day I was driving home from basketball practice. 
And I grew up in a small town, really rural, so it was a two-lane highway, um, and it was really icy. And um, as I was driving home from basketball practice, I saw about 30 feet in front of me a car that was stopped. It had, it had its brake lights on. And I saw, I was between me and the car was a bunch of black ice on the road. So I knew I had some decisions to make. Because I could either keep going and slam into the back of the car, or I could put on my brakes and maybe slide on the ice. Um, and driving on the car on my right was like a big embankment. And then there's the guardrail on my left and then a big cliff. And um, in a valley down below, there's a mobile home park called Camelot. So anyways, <laughs> I just let, yeah, I drove by it every day. So I'm driving on the road, and um, it's kind of funny because it was like one of those slow-motion panic situations. And you always kind of, you think about what you think in that time, and you're like, there's no way that was a split second because what was going through my brain had to have taken like at least two minutes to go through. So I remember thinking, what all I was thinking about was like, I can see the newspaper headline right now, two-tone brown escort goes through a mobile home park in Cam- a mobile home in Camelot. You know, that's what's going to be written. So I decided to brake. So I brake, and immediately the back of the car starts fishtailing. You know, I'm going back and forth. And my dad was a driver's ed teacher, so I start thinking right away, what you do when you start sliding is you turn into the skid, right? And that will hopefully give you, that will hopefully help get you like that, man. It was crazy. It will hopefully help get you control of the vehicle. So that's what I do. I turn in the direction that the car is slipping in. I start going in in that direction. And I basically turn 180, and the driver's side of the car hits up against the embankment. And then I had so much momentum that the car kept on going, and I ended up on the road exactly where I started from, 360 degrees. And um, I'm not very emotional. I don't react much, so I was like, all right, started the car and drove foam. And <laughs> basically, the whole driver's side was completely just crunched in and the triple T was totaled, you know, rest in peace. It was really sad. We ended up parting it out and made a lot more money than we bought it for, $250. But the reason I tell that story is because when I think about what I did when I started sliding on the ice, I turned into the direction that I was sliding. And when we think about weaknesses in our lives and in our worlds, what we do is we turn away. We turn away as far away from them as we can get. In reality, what Paul is saying here is we need to turn into our weaknesses, turn towards the things that we think we should run from. And yeah, what happened was the car was damaged. But the outcome was I ended up exactly the direction I wanted to be going in. We might end up with a thorn in our flesh. We're going to be crunched. There's a reality of weaknesses in our lives. But if we get so caught up in the weaknesses, we aren't going to remember that there's an outcome where we can end up where Christ is giving us strength. And that is the direction that we want to go in. That is where we want to be. Because we spend a lot of time putting up masks. We spend a lot of time flexing so people can see how strong we are all the time, right? Do you know how tiring it is to maintain flexing all the time? I bet it's pretty tiring, And the reality is that what we're called to do is, by Paul, what Paul is telling us is turn into your weaknesses. Turn into the ways that you're slipping, even though you feel like you should go the other direction. Now, most of us in this room are not 
physically affected by a thorn in the flesh, right? We're young, vital people. So what are the weaknesses that we're faced with? Well, I can think of a couple things just off the top of my head. The weakness of habitual sin. There's something in our lives that we're tempted by over and over and over again, and we just keep doing it over and over and over. Now, when I say turn towards that weakness, I'm not saying, so keep on going out and sinning because you're supposed to keep showing that you're weak. I'm saying acknowledge that you are weak and you cannot do it on your own. And rejoice in the fact, not in the fact that you're a sinner, but in the fact that God is going to forgive you and strengthen you and fill you up. Whatever it is, the weakness that you struggle with, maybe it's a weakness of the way you view yourself. You view yourself too low. You're so weak. Everybody's better than you, smarter than you, funnier than you, prettier than you. Or maybe you view yourself so high. How come everybody else can't figure out how awesome I am, right? (laughs) I'm the best. Both of those lead to horrible self-focus constantly, selfishness. That's a weakness that many of us are afflicted with every day. But no matter what it is that our weaknesses are, they bring us to our knees. If we turn into those weaknesses, we turn toward them, they lead us back to where we need to be. They lead us back to God. And when we're afflicted by whatever thorn in our flesh might be, whatever the weaknesses that we struggle with, we are reminded once again God is enough. Not God and me when I figure out how I can be perfect. Then that'll be enough. Not God and me when I get as strong as I possibly can. Then that will be enough. Just God. God is enough for us. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this passage in 2 Corinthians. Satan's angel did the best to get me down in the midst of the thorn of my flesh. But what happened was, I was brought to my knees. I asked God to remove it and heard, My grace is enough, Paul. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. No matter the circumstances, I let Christ take over. So the weaker I get, the more beat down, the more bad breaks, the stronger I become. When my weaknesses appear, I let Christ take over. That's why I'm strong. When I turn into my weaknesses and admit, I cannot do it on my own. I can't focus on my weakness I need to focus on the fact that Christ is strengthening me in the midst of it. And the outcome is the important thing for me. Now, the question we're left with is, so where do we go from here? I'm not supposed to try and cover up my weaknesses or strengthen them. I got that. But what am I supposed to do when I identify what my weaknesses are? How do I actually serve What do I do with this in trying to move forward? I know, I get it. Strength and weakness is something that I'm still trying to figure out in my own life, in my own faith. But there's one thing I just, I want you to get, if nothing else. Acknowledging the fact that we are weak draws us to our knees. And it draws us closer to God. 
And it's by doing that that God will be at work in our lives. God will do the transformation that we need. And in the midst of that transformation, that is where we discover what our strengths are, what our gifts are, what are the ways that we can serve and actually use what God has given us for the kingdom of God. And this is not a quick fix. It's not immediate. I know we would like it to be, but this is a slow transformation of God in our lives day by day by day. And like Paul, we can boast in our weaknesses because of how much more it demonstrates Christ in our lives. I had an experience of this a couple summers ago. I worked as a chaplain at Swedish Hospital. So full-time for 12 weeks, I was working as a chaplain. And going into it, I was really anxious. I was really nervous because, um, I, like I said, I'm not emotional. I'm really rational. I'm logical. You know, I don't know. I'm not going to cry when someone else is crying. I don't know what to say to comfort people. So I went in thinking, like, I am going to suck at this. I'm going to be the worst chaplain there is. And I, every day walking into the hospital rooms, I would be like, okay, listen, here we go. You know, counting down the minutes, I'd get done, and I'd just chuck my pager down, and I'd brainstorm, what are things I can do to make myself, you know, like, cry? And should I, like, pull out a nose hair right before I walk into the hospital room so my eyes, like, well up with tears? And I would talk to my supervisor about this. I would tell her about how weak I was, how awful I was at this. And about four weeks in, my supervisor just looks at me and she's, she says, Janie, shut up. If I were in a hospital bed, the chaplain that I would want to come in is someone who would come in and be completely calm. Or if I had a loved one who was sick and dying, I would want someone to come and talk to me who wouldn't cry so I could cry. And I don't want them to say anything. I just want them to listen. So in actuality, you are the perfect chaplain. Get over yourself. You know, in react, my reaction was kind of like, ah. <laughs> I just kidding, I didn't cry. But wouldn't that be a great ending? Sorry. Uh, I was like, oh, I was so focused on how horrible I was. I was so obsessed with myself and these weaknesses that I couldn't see the ways that God was using my weaknesses as strengths. The ways that Christ was revealed through the very things that I hated about myself. I was unable to see the way that when I was weak, that was when I was strong. So for that point on, I love being a chaplain. And actually, it's something I feel like I want to do later on in my life. Because it was a great experience of, wow, my weaknesses are made strong through Christ. It's interesting we're talking about strength and weakness this week, Holy Week. Because on Palm Sunday, Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey. Not exactly the most picture of power and strength. And then in the upper room, he got down and he washed the feet of his disciples, which is actually a job for a slave, the weakest person in a room. And then Philippians 2 tells us that he actually, Christ emptied himself to total weakness. He took on a crown of thorns. He was insulted. He was, he was beat. He was spit on. He was cursed at. And he hung on a cross and died 
On Good Friday, Jesus was the picture of total and complete weakness. But his weakness and death didn't have the final word. And we know that he did that so that he could strengthen us. That we could know his perfect, transforming grace and love in every area of our lives. So that we would be able to say, when I am weak, then I am strong. And we can know beyond anything in our lives that he is always enough. Don't run away from your weaknesses. Turn, turn toward them. Be willing to take them to God and get on your knees and say, I can't do this. I'm too weak. And know that you can be transformed by his grace, his love, his perfect power, the strength you need no matter what your weaknesses are. Gracious God, we thank you that Your power is made perfect in our weakness. We don't know what that means. We don't know what that looks like. But God, we desire to know more of your strength in our lives. God, I pray that as as we look at your death on the cross this week, Holy Week, we will remember that it is not in vain you made yourself weak unto death. But it is so we can discover more and more truly what life looks like in you, through you, with you. As we know that any strength we have comes from you. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen.